Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. So if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Genesis chapter 35, and we are going to be covering two chapters tonight, Genesis 35 and 36. Um, But before I go on to those chapters, and before I even begin at all, actually, I would like to pray, because I could use the Spirit on me, and I want to preach God's words and not mine. So I'm going to pray, and then we can dive into it, but... Lord, we come before you now, and Lord, we just acknowledge that we need you. Lord, as people, not just me up here, but all of us, every single one of us needs you desperately. God, apart from you, we have nothing. I think of that hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, where it says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. Lord, we bring nothing to the table except our brokenness and our sin and our humbleness and just say, God, use us. And so, God, I pray you'd speak through the words that you've given me tonight. But more than that, Lord, I pray that you would work in everyone's hearts here, that we would understand what you want to speak to us. And so, God, may the name of Jesus be the name that's lifted high tonight. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, last week, we kind of looked at the aftermath of what happened after Jacob's reunion with his brother Esau. And so, what seemed like a really good reunion, they seemed to be like, having be in a good spot, but then suddenly the old Jacob comes out again, and Esau's ready to head back to where he was living in Seir, and he invites Jacob to go with him, and Jacob totally lies, and Jacob says, my flocks and my herds, they're nursing, and my children are frail, so why don't you just go on, and I'll catch up with you in a couple days at where you're at. But once Esau heads out, Jacob goes the complete opposite direction, and he bails, and he goes to Shechem. And in Shechem, which is not where the Lord told him to go, by the way, he builds a house. So Jacob was supposed to return to the land of his birth like God had told him to do in Bethel. So in Genesis 31, 13, God told Jacob, he says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. And instead of obeying God fully and returning to Bethel, he settles for Shechem, and he sets up shop there like permanently. He builds a house, not what he was supposed to do at all. And then he builds an altar to the Lord when he's there. I don't know if that's like just to feel better about himself or to worship the Lord or whatever the motivation was, but it does beg the question of why would you build an altar to a God that you weren't willing to fully obey in the first place? Because you cannot claim to be really worshiping God if you're not in a place where you're willing to obey him, right? And Pastor Kevin, he quoted the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 46, where Jesus says to people, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And so if we call the Lord, Lord, we should be willing to obey him wherever he calls us to go. And Jacob was not in that place. He was returning to his old habits and doing what he felt he needed to do for self-preservation. And so this compromise, it ultimately leads to some serious issues in Jacob's family. Jacob failed as a father in leading and protecting his whole family, but as a result of that, he allowed his daughter Dinah to be kidnapped by Shechem, and she's taken captive there and raped. 
And then because of the fear of the people around him, he doesn't even stand up for her. He actually stands down and doesn't attempt to rescue her or even like reason with them um, because he's afraid of what the people around him will say. And because of Jacob's lack of leadership, his sons, Levi and Simeon, they are the ones who stand up for their sister, but not in a good way. Because in their desire for vengeance on Shechem, they use circumcision as a weapon. They essentially, they trick the men of the city into circumcising themselves by saying, listen, we'll give our daughters to you and you can give your daughters to us and we'll trade with you and we'll be in a relationship. But once they actually do the deed, then they go in and they pillage the town for themselves. And it's a horrible scenario because what's essentially happening is they're using this institution that God had given them as a symbol of holiness and being set apart for their Lord and they're using it as a weapon and a tool for revenge in their own hands. And so the chapter ends with Jacob angry that his sons had even done such a thing because he's afraid of what the other nations will think of him now that they've done this deed. And while it's true that what Simeon and Levi did was wrong, Jacob was really the one who refused to take ownership of his family and to lead his family well. And he allowed the whole mess to unfold. Like this shouldn't have even happened. Jacob was around, but instead he took the backseat and an apathetic role as a father and as a patriarch of his family. And so this is one of, probably one of the saddest accounts in all of Israel's history, like period. And the name of God, it's really interesting, the name of God isn't even brought up once in the entirety of chapter 34 at all. Like, and it shows. Because the Lord didn't command any of this to be done. And even though Jacob had built an altar to the Lord in his backyard, it seems that he didn't even appeal to the Lord once during this whole thing. But praise God, the story doesn't end there on that downer note, and it continues on because of God's grace and his mercy and faithfulness. There's a whole rest of the Bible afterward. So thank God for that. So we'll pick up in Genesis 35, starting at verse one. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the tree, under the oak, which was near Shechem. <sighs> Finally, there's some actual good things happening in this story after the terribleness of last chapter. So several years has passed since God's first commanded Jacob to go to Bethel, and a lot has happened since then. Not only has Jacob been through a lot of painful ordeals himself, a lot of it was due to his own failure, and a lot of it was because of his own disobedience to not follow the Lord. And once again, we see this pattern that Pastor Kevin has been bringing up in Jacob's life and really everyone's life in the family of Abraham, but especially Jacob, where he trusts the Lord and he follows him and he's after him and he's zealous for the Lord. And then he goes back and he doubts God and does his own thing. And then he starts following the Lord again and he's doing it and he wants to serve Jesus. And then he goes back and he's not following the Lord anymore. And I think after all of this, especially after all the chaos of the last chapter, it would be easy to assume that God was just totally done with Jacob. Like, forget it, the promise is over, whatever, you are totally a pagan, I'm not gonna have anything to do with you. And I almost guarantee that Jacob wrestled with insecurities and doubts. Like, I've totally blown it, this time I've gone too far, my whole family is a mess, I've been disobedient to the Lord, there's no way God's gonna forgive me now. 
But despite all of the sin and the chaos in the last chapter, the Lord, in his steadfast love and his grace and his mercy, he appears again to Jacob and he retells him the same command. And he tells him, just like he did before, to go to Bethel and to live there. And he also tells him to build an altar there to, I like this, he says, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And I think it's really key that he brings that out because God is specifically reminding Jacob of the first time that he ever met the Lord. The first time that the Lord came with the covenant blessings to Jacob and promised him those things. And it's a reminder to Jacob like, hey, the same Lord who was with you then, he's with you now, still. The same God who promised you all those things, it's the same God who cares for you right now at this moment. God hasn't abandoned him, and Jacob can still rely and claim for himself the promises of God. He can rely on those things. And Jacob, he understands this, because in verse three, he says, he calls God the one who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. He like understands, like, man, despite everything I've done, the Lord is still with me. He still loves me. His grace is upon me, and he still desires to fulfill his promises for me. And he's finally starting to understand through all of this that he isn't really the one holding on to God. Like, yes, he's seeking the Lord on and off, but really it's the Lord who's holding on to Jacob tight. And it's Jesus and God is the one who's holding on to him. And whether you realize it or not, this is how we operate in our walk with the Lord. Because our standing with Christ, it doesn't come from our own strength. It comes from the grace of God and the power of his Holy Spirit. That's where we stand. Because our part is just to respond in obedience and surrender to the Lord's will and say, yes, Lord, I will accept what you're doing in my life and the fact that you want to work in me and the fact that you want to save me and love me and bring me into new things. But left to our own flesh, we will always, we're prone to wander away from the Lord. I think of that hymn that says, called Come Thou Fount, where it says, Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like I relate to that. Can I get an amen for that? Like, that's how we operate, right? It's like, man, we're just so prone to leave the God. And in my head, I know I love Jesus, right? And I understand that. And in my heart, I know I love Jesus, but I end up doing the things I don't want to do. And in my flesh, I wander away from God. But that's the beauty of the Holy Spirit within us. He leads us back to Jesus, and he's always faithful to do that. And really, the Holy Spirit within us, it's a seal and it's a guarantee that God is holding on to us. In Ephesians, Paul writes this in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. He says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's like, man, the Lord has sealed us And the awesome thing about the Lord is that he's the one who chases us down. It's not the other way around. Like, at least I'll speak for me. Between me and the Lord, I'm not the active pursuer in the relationship. Like, yes, I want to serve the Lord, and yes, I want to be dedicated to him, but certainly on my own strength, I'm not the one who's putting in most of the work. It's the Lord always faithful to come and remind me of his goodness towards me and his love towards me and his faithfulness towards me. I think of David's words in Psalm 139. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. 
David went through a lot of things in his life, and he is a testament to the fact that God holds on to even the craziest of people because David went through some crazy stuff. But the Lord continued to lay a hold of his life and to continue to work on him and with him. So Jacob, he's encouraged and he's empowered now by the Lord's grace and love towards him. And because of this inspiration he has from the grace of God, he begins to take charge of his family situation. So first he tells them to put away all the foreign gods which are among them. So this likely began under Jacob's watch all the way back when his wife Rachel stole the idols from her father Laban and took them with them when they left. And maybe even before that, who knows how long idolatry has been going on in this family. But idol worship's been going on for a while now in Jacob's family and probably with Jacob's knowledge too. But he's been inspired by God's grace and mercy to break out of his apathy and to stand up for righteousness in his home. And just as a side note, this is my encouragement to you as parents. I'm not a parent, but my encouragement to you as parents, like, man, take hold of your family's life. Like, if there's things that are wrong in your home, especially if you know about them, like, don't be afraid to lead. Like, even, even in the face of insecurities and whatever it is, whatever the reason is that you're not doing it, like, man, the Lord has called you to lead in your homes. And like the Lord will give you the strength and the wisdom to lead well. And so you can be a great father and a great mother that leads your family in righteousness. And so I think this is a perfect example of what that looks like. Like there is something not right in my home and I'm going to take charge and I'm going to lead my family well. So he tells them to purify themselves and to change their garments. So it seems weird that he asks them to take a shower and to like get clean. But this is more than just like getting clean like physically. Because in ancient culture, the outward cleansing and changing of clothes, it represented the inward cleansing and change of the heart. And that's really what Jacob is after. Like, yes, he wants to be clean and ready for the Lord physically, but especially inwardly. And this is something we see emphasized even more in the ministry of Jesus, because to Jesus, the inner contents of our heart matter way more than whatever's going on on the outside and outward cleanliness. This is why when Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the law to the inner intent of the heart. So in Matthew 5, he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus' point is not that thinking a bad thought about someone or lusting after someone is just as bad or damaging as physically committing that act. But the point that he's making is that he desires inward purity, not just outward. And so it's more than just acting the part out. It's like, Lord, change the inner desires of the heart. And this is why Jesus is so adamantly against the ways of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, because they were like the definition of this. They pretended to be righteous on the outside, but inside their hearts are far from the Lord. And still in Matthew, in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which are on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so this is the heart that Jacob has for his family here. And all of that is to say that what Jacob is doing here is actually really simple. He's leading his family in repentance. He's leading them in repentance of their sin. Because repentance is more than just saying you're sorry for what you did. It's more than just feeling bad about the bad things you do. Repentance is active. It's a turning away from your sin and a turning towards the things of God. 
I'm going to steal a sermon analogy from my dad that I used with the middle schoolers to explain repentance to them. I see Carlos and Colleen in the back. They know what I'm about to do. So my dad always explained it like this. He says, before I was following the Lord, I was walking Dave's way. But it's, it's Liam's way because I'm talking. But I, before I was following the Lord, I was walking Liam's way. And I was doing my own thing. But when I got saved, I began to walk Jesus's way. And suddenly I'm not doing the things that Liam wants anymore. I'm actively pursuing the things that God wants. That's what repentance looks like. It's more than just like, oh, I feel bad about this. I don't want to do it, but I don't change. Like the point of repentance is that you turn towards the things of God. And the beautiful part of this whole passage is that they actually do it. They actually follow through on Jacob's leadership and they say, okay, And they take all their idols and their earrings, it says, that were likely associated with idolatry, and they bury them under the tree. And finally, this family is learning to obey the Lord and to walk in holiness and to repent of their sin. And so verse 5, as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below, or below Bethel under the oak, and it was named Alon Bakath. So Jacob is now walking in obedience to the Lord. He's repented of his sin, he's clean, cleansed out the, the sin from within his family, and he begins this journey towards Bethel that he really should have started a long time ago, but praise the Lord for his grace, he's making it now. But what's really awesome is that the Lord protects them as they go. And so in the last chapter, Jacob was angry at his sons because he was worried that the slaughter and the raid they did of Shechem would result in other cities attacking them. So he says this in the last chapter. He said this to his sons, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. In my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed, I and my household. And in that moment, Jacob was completely forgetting the promises of God that he would protect him. But that was his fear. But despite his fear, God keeps his promise. He keeps up his end of the deal and God is with him wherever he goes. And so as they go from town to town, the fear of God comes upon each city, so much so that they don't even dare to attack them at all. And they're able to walk through safely. And this is a repeated theme that actually happens with Jacob's family throughout the rest of the Old Testament, where God protects the children of Israel by placing an intense fear on the surrounding nations. A really cool example of that is when the Israelites, they're going into the promised land in Joshua chapter 2. And the two spies are talking to Rahab in the city, and she tells them this. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and this is the key, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard of it, this is so cool, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So for the people in the promised land at that time, the Canaanites, they were like melted away every single bit of courage because they see the Lord for who he really is, the God of the universe. And we don't want to stand up against that. And this is the beauty of following the Lord because when we follow him, nothing can touch us without the Lord's consent at all. 
That doesn't mean we'll be perfectly safe. That doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us, and we'll talk more about that later, but it's like Paul writes in Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? It's like, what could man do to me that God in his sovereign will hasn't already allowed for my benefit? And so that's where this family's at. They're following the Lord and they're being protected by him. So once Jacob officially makes it to Bethel, he continues in his obedience and he keeps following the Lord. He builds an altar like the Lord told him to. And it's like genuinely refreshing to see Jacob following the Lord again. It's like, yes, this is what you're supposed to do. Like God has your best interests in mind. So keep following him. The passage also mentions that Rebecca's nurse dies. So this is not Rachel's nurse or any of Jacob's wives' nurses. This is Jacob's mother's nurse, um, which seems odd because we haven't actually really met her up until now. Um, The first time we've heard of her by name is here. Her name's Deborah. She was briefly mentioned in Genesis 24, 59, when Rebecca left with Abraham's servant to come meet Isaac. But other than that, she isn't brought up throughout the rest of it. It seems that maybe she was a part of Jacob's camp at this point, but we're really not sure. But regardless, they bury her at Bethel under an oak tree. And although this is a brief mention, I do want to set up an idea that'll come up later, which is that just because you're following the Lord doesn't mean hardships won't come in your life. Just because you're following the Lord doesn't mean bad things or hardships won't come. So keep that in the back of your mind as we go on. But verse 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus, he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and the company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. This is so cool. So Jacob's at the same place where God first gave him the promised covenant, and now he's here again, and God gives him another vision in the same place. And this time, it's the promises are even greater than they were before. Now he's talking about how kings are going to come forth from him. And um, he's reaffirming the promise to him. It's really cool. So first, God opens up by reminding him of his name change. So although Jacob has already been renamed Israel, it's really important that he's reminded of it again because he started acting like Jacob again in the last chapter. And so he's the furthest thing I can think of from Israel. But despite that, God is telling him, your given name is Jacob, the deceiver. That's the name you were given by your parents. But I, the Lord, am telling you that's no longer who you are. You are not that person anymore. You are Israel and you are mine. I bought you, you're mine. This is like so beautiful because despite all the sin and the irresponsibility that Jacob showed in the last chapter, his name is still Israel. That's still who he is. And it's not like some technicality, like, oh, I guess God just nicknamed him Israel. If God says it, then it's true. And so his name really is Israel now. That's his name. And it would probably be easy, just like before, to think that Jacob's blown it way too much to be called Israel. Like, he certainly doesn't seem like someone who's ruled by God. That's not what I think of when I see Jacob in the last chapter. But God, in his grace and his mercy, he reminds Jacob that his behavior hasn't forfeited the title he has. He's still Israel. 
And it reminds me of the same grace that's extended to us as believers because we too, we bear titles that we don't deserve in our life. We are called saints. We're called sons and daughters of the living God. And there have been many times in my life, particularly after I've sinned or when I'm struggling with temptation, when I look at myself and I say, surely this is it. Like, I've gone too far. Like, God's never going to call me a son and daughter again. Or he's not going to call me a daughter. He's not going to call me a son again. Like, I'm far too unclean for that. There's just no way. But the Lord is always faithful every single time to remind me that I really am a saint, that I really am a son of God. And not because of anything I've done, but totally and completely by the grace of God. That is why I am who I am. And that's why you are who you are. Because God's gift to you and his grace to you. And that applies to even the best of us. Even the best of us are completely and totally reliant on God's grace and mercy. The Apostle Paul, when I think of a righteous person, Paul is like, wrote half the New Testament, righteous man. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so Paul understood what we all should understand, which is that our standing with the Lord, it's based on grace. And he doesn't let his insecurities get in the way. He doesn't let the shame of his previous sins come back to haunt him. He just says, you know what? I am what God says I am because God said it. And I can't argue with that. That's just who I am. But after this, after reaffirming to Jacob his name, he then moves on and commands Jacob to take a hold of the promise. So not only are you Israel, I want you to take a hold of the promises I've given you. They're for you. Take them. Be fruitful and multiply. Kings are going to come from you. Amazing things are going to be done through your family. I want you to trust me that this is going to happen. And so after seeing this, Jacob, he once again sets up an altar and anoints it to remember God's faithfulness and to express his own gratitude towards God. And he also pours out a drink offering to go like above and beyond and to show his personal devotion to the Lord. So verse 16, it continues on. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So at some point, Rachel who at this point has only had one biological son, became pregnant again. And this is a serious blessing from the Lord, again, on this family. Uh, it's an answer to Rachel's many prayers for children that she's prayed many times throughout the book of Genesis. Um, but remember back to Genesis 30, because after Jacob married both Rachel and Leah, there was a sibling rivalry that was formed, which, no duh, you married sisters together. It's a whole mess. So sibling rivalry forms. Leah was unloved by Jacob, who really only wanted to marry Rachel and didn't even care about Leah. But God, in his grace and his compassion, he opened Leah's womb. And because of this, uh, she became, Rachel became jealous of her sister Leah and began to compete with children with her. And so as a result, both of them end up giving their servants to Jacob to have children through them. It's a whole mess because of the sibling rivalry that was formed. And in the middle of that scenario, uh, Rachel came to Jacob and she says these words to him. 
give me children or else I die. Those are the words she said, very intense. And Jacob's response is, am I God? That like I can open and close your womb? Like I'm not in that place. Like I'm not the one who's done this. But a lot of commentators pointed it out and I think it's interesting because these words have somewhat turned out to be true for her. She dies here in the middle of childbirth. And I'm not saying that's because of her hasty words, but it is interesting to note that that's what ends up what happening. But as she's dying in childbirth, she names her son Ben-Oni, meaning son of my sorrow. David Guzik, he says this in his commentary, Rachel named this last child, who before would have been seen as a cause for rejoicing and victory in competition with her sister, Ben-Oni, meaning son of my sorrow. Ultimately, this shows the futility of Rachel's competition with her sister Leah. Now, at the time of her final victory, all she found was sorrow. But Jacob, he actually chooses to rename the boy from what, her, what his wife had named her, renamed him. And he names him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And so rather than choosing to remember the son by the death of his wife, he chooses to view him as the blessing and joy that he is. He says, no, this isn't a, a curse from God. This is a blessing that I have a son. So Jacob then buries his wife in what will become Bethlehem, and he moves on with his journey. And this all ties back to something I just mentioned a little bit ago, which is that just because we're following the Lord doesn't mean that tragedy won't strike. Bad things will still happen. Jacob is in the will of the Lord right now. He's following God. He had repented of his sins and he's gone where God told him to go and he built an altar where God had told him to go and he's hearing from the Lord again. But the sad reality is that we live in a sinful fallen world and bad things still happen. Death is all around us and sickness still strikes us and illness still strikes. And Jacob, he shows the proper response to tragedy here. This is how you should respond because he doesn't blame God for what happened or others for what happened to Rachel. Instead, he is thankful for the gift of Benjamin. He grieves his wife and he continues to follow the Lord onward to where he's supposed to go. And that is what patient endurance looks like. It's to say, Lord, I understand that you are in control of all things and I just trust you. And yes, it grieves my heart and grieving is a healthy thing and a good thing, but he continues to follow in the Lord and doesn't, doesn't falter under that. But did you guys know that when our faith is tested, it actually brings glory to God? This is why God tests our faith, because it brings him glory. In 1 Peter 1, 6-7, Peter writes this. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that's why God puts us through these things. They test our faith. They show it to be true. And it refines us. So continuing on in verse 22. It came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were 12 sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi, and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, then the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. So right after an already really hard situation with the death of Jacob's most loved wife, Jacob's son commits this terrible sin of sleeping with his father's concubine, Bilhah. 
This was a sin against himself and against his father, his entire family, and against God's design. It was gross immorality in every sense of the word. And according to Warren Wearsby's commentary, this is a little bit more than just fulfilling unhealthy lust on Reuben's part. This kind of behavior actually happens more than once in the Bible. And a perfect example of it is in 2 Samuel 16, King David's son Absalom, he's taken the throne of his father, and in order to assert himself and to assert his dominance over his father's kingdom and to make his leadership very clear, he takes his, um, his advisor Ahithophel's advice and he pitches a tent on his roof and he sleeps with his father's concubines. And he does this because it's to strengthen his reign. The idea is basically this, I'm the one in charge here. I'm taking my father's place, I'm replacing you. I'm disowning him. And so a similar thing seems to be happening here. Because Reuben, he already had the privilege of being the firstborn son. That was already, he had the rights of that. But instead of just being satisfied with that, in his lust and his greed, he tries to establish himself above his father. And he takes things that definitely do not belong to him. And it seems from the passage that when you read it, it seems like Reuben gets off like scot-free because the only response that's mentioned is that Jacob heard about it, which is like really tame response. It's like all you did is hear about it. But if you continue reading, you see that Reuben's sin does find him out and it does come up later. So near the end of his life, Pastor Kevin talked about this last week, Jacob, he gathers all of his sons to him and he blesses them. But on the first three children, he pronounces what I think are better described as curses more than blessings. Um, Pastor Kevin already covered the words that he spoke to Simeon and Levi for their sin at Shechem. But here's what Jacob says to Reuben in Genesis 49. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And so as a result of this sin, the leadership in the family, the firstborn right, is seemingly actually passed on to the fourthborn son because the first three kind of forfeited it through their sin. And so it passes on to Judah. And so in Genesis 49 also, Jacob says this to Judah. He says, the, shep the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. And so the idea there is that Judah becomes the one who not only the royalty comes from, so the respect of the rest of his brothers, but also it's where the ultimate king, the king of kings comes from, Jesus, the Messiah. And so he's the one who has that blessing. Also, as a side note, Judah is not a perfect man either. We'll talk about that more in a couple weeks, but he also has his own share of mistakes and issues. But it's right here. After all of this chaos and sin, that the book of Genesis, for the first time, it lists out the 12 children of Israel. With the only difference being that the tribe of Joseph is actually split into two with Ephraim and Manasseh. These are the tribes that we're going to follow, not just through the rest of the book of Genesis, but the whole Bible. And I think the point, it really screams loud and clear when you read it in context of what we just went over with Reuben, because these are not the most moral men in the world. <laughs> these are broken people. Every single one of them, They're, the family is filled with strife and sin and backbiting and selfishness and deceit and every form of sin you can think of. But by God's grace and his mercy, he uses them in mighty ways. And he fulfills every single one of his promises towards them, even though they are definitely not deserving of that. 
And what I love about this is that this is the story that God tells even today. Because when I look at the church today, and I look at even our church, and this is not me slamming on you, it's just the truth, we're a bunch of broken people. We're a bunch of sinners. That's just who we are. Myself most definitely included in that. Like, we are broken people desperately in need of God's grace and mercy. If our study on Sundays in 1 Corinthians has taught us anything, it's that the church is often messed up. The church is often in a very broken, ugly place. There's fighting, there's selfishness, there's gossip, there's all sorts of things that are wrong. But God, over the past 2,000 years, has still been faithful to love us and to guide us and to sanctify us and most crazy of all, to use us. Like the church is still moving and is powerful. And Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, and that's the truth. And that's still remained the truth over the past 2,000 years. If you read through church history, it's not a pretty picture. But here we are today, still worshiping Jesus in this sanctuary, and that's a gift of God. There are days when I'm blown away by the fact that not only does God love me, but he desires to use me. I've spent many days and nights racking my brain, trying to figure out why in the world God would choose me of all people to serve him. And quite frankly, the only answer I can think of, because I've exhausted every other opportunity, is just that God loves me. And he's given me the gift of serving here and to be blessed in leadership here. I don't deserve that. I didn't earn that gift, but it's a gift that God gives me anyway because I'm his son and he desires to use me. And it's the same for us. It's like for all of us that the Lord desires to use us and to grow us. And so that's a beautiful picture of the Bible. God uses broken and ugly things for his purposes. So verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So the family continues on, and they are able to see Jacob's father Isaac one last time. So the passage, it doesn't give us many details of what the reunion of Isaac and Jacob was like, but we do know that the Isaac, uh, Isaac's death is served as a reunion opportunity for them. When these two last saw each other, Jacob lied to Esau and said he was going to be with him and then didn't. So I would imagine it was a pretty awkward encounter, at least at first. Like, hey, sorry, I lied to you. But it seems to be that there's not too many hard feelings and that they are able to unite over the burial of their father and they're able to reunite with him. And this leads us into chapter 36, which is the genealogy of Esau's family. Now, for sake of time, and because I don't want to pronounce every single name, and Pastor Ryan said I didn't have to, I'm not going to read through all of them, um, but I do want to pull out a couple key points from this passage. And so if you were looking forward, like, oh my gosh, Liam has to read all these names, I'm sorry to disappoint you, I won't. But you can read it later on yourself. So there's actually six lists of names here in Genesis 36, and some of them seem to be some duplicates. And we can see from the section that although Esau wasn't the one with the covenant blessing that went to Jacob, he was actually a very blessed man. He had many children, he had many possessions, and he actually had some kings and chief that came from his lineage. In fact, his possessions are so great, they're what led him and Jacob to split up again after this. And so in verse 6, it says this in chapter 36. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. 
So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Sodom. Or not Sodom. He's, he's Edom. Sorry. So Esau's people are known as the Edomites throughout the rest of Scripture. And they're actually really important key neighbors to the people of Israel. So they show up again in Numbers during the Exodus when um, they refused to let the Israelites go through their land. And it was a really big downer for the Israelites, and they were really discouraged. They also fought against the Israelites several times throughout the Bible in First and Second Samuel and in Second Kings. And we also see from this passage that one of Israel's core enemies, the Amalekites, comes from Esau's lineage. And so even if they had kind of somewhat reconciled, it seems to be that their feud lives on in some way in the form of that rivalry between those two nations. But Edom continues to be brought up throughout the Bible. And multiple of the prophets speak against them, including Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And the entire book of Obadiah is actually one long prophecy against the Edomites that prophesies their eventual destruction. But despite all this, because they're descendants of Abraham, God still shows care for Esau's descendants. In Deuteronomy 23.7, Moses commands the Israelites and he says this, You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. And so ultimately, though, Obadiah's words of destruction do prove true because the Edomites, they joined the Jewish people in fighting against Rome in AD 66 through like AD 70, and they were totally destroyed, wiped out, never heard from again after that. And so Esau's story, it shows us, I think, that material blessings, they matter very little compared to the spiritual blessings that Jacob had. Like, sure, Esau was a very blessed man. He had a lot going for him. He had a lot of livestock. He had many children. He had authority in his family. It was a strong people. Like, what more could you ask for than that? But Jacob, he had something even more precious and valuable, and that was the blessing and favor of God. That was what mattered. And here we are. We continue to talk about Jacob's family and the blessing he had. Definitely not because Jacob deserved it, but because God poured out his grace and his mercy on him. And ultimately, it's the same for us today because this covenant blessing, it's the same one that we share in because when Jesus came, he fulfilled God's promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. That was the promise to Abraham and that's what we get to be a part of now is that we are the other nations blessed by Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And this blessing that we have, it doesn't come from our own righteousness. It comes through the atoning death and sacrifice of God. And so tonight, we're actually going to have communion together. And communion, it's a reminder not of our own righteousness. Far from that, it's a reminder of Jesus' righteousness for us. That this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is my blood poured out for you. And the idea there is that Jesus' sacrifice, it's what covers us, and it's what makes us holy, and it's what makes us right with God. And so as we as we partake in this in a little bit and as the worship team comes up, it's like, man, we should remember and reflect upon the fact that God is the one who gives us our standing with the Lord. It's not us, it's not anything we can do, but if we come to him in our brokenness and just say, Lord, I need you, he forgives us and he allows us to have a relationship with him. And so as we take communion, I do pray that you guys would search your own hearts as Paul would say. And the reason for that is not because you prove your own righteousness by your piety and being holy, but so that you can be open and transparent for the Lord and ask for his blood to forgive you and to cleanse you, and that you can be brought into right relationship again and reunion with him. And so 
don't let this be just another communion. I pray that when you take this, you don't just say, yeah, this is what we do at church. Like, remember that this is Jesus' blood poured out for you so that you, like Jacob, can be blessed beyond anything that you deserve. And so I was just reminded, I don't know why I want to share this, but I'm reminded of sometimes when my dad is asked, if someone asks him how he's doing, he'll like, oh, better than I deserve because I should be in hell. And it's like, I think it's funny and it kind of gets a chuckle out of me, but there's a serious part of that where it's like, man, that is actually what we deserve. What we deserve is the judgment of God, but in his grace and his mercy, we don't have to live there. We can accept the freedom and the forgiveness that Christ gives. And so I'm gonna pray. And then as you feel led during worship, you can come and take the elements and just take them in your own time. But ponder in your own heart, like, Lord, search me and know me. Know all the things that are going on in my heart. I want your blood to cover me completely. And so let's pray. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.